It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's Friday, February 25th, and you're tuned into the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. I'm Joe Noga, joined by Paul Hoynes. Hoynesy, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of no movement tomorrow, uh, yesterday in the uh, the, the talks uh, ongoing between Major League Baseball and the Players Association. Uh, just uh, another exchange of proposals. Uh, it sounds like yesterday's talks were were mostly focused on service time manipulation and the uh, proposals surrounding the draft and a draft lottery uh, still haven't attacked the, the big core issue of uh, the competitive balance tax, but uh, some of these proposals that the players association threw out there with the draft lottery seem sort of interesting. Yeah, definitely, Joe. I, I was, you know, you, I think you get anxious now, you know, what this is uh, the, they'll meet today again, Friday, that means what, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you've got, you know, four days left, four and a half days left to uh, get a deal done. Um, and, uh, you know, I saw, you know, the, the Players Association had a lot of players yesterday at the meeting. You saw, you know, a bunch of guys, and I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't think deals get done with, you know, 20 people in the room. I think they get done when you got, you know, when you get two on two or you know, the smaller the, the group that meets, I think the better chance you got to get in a meeting done or a deal done. But still, uh, the proposals keep exchanging and uh, you, you just you just want something to get, you know, some concrete movement to be to be made. Yeah, you get a you get a sort of an uneasy feeling every time they, they emerge and, and, and there isn't, you know, some announcement of, of some sort of progress there. Uh, you said, you know, the more people in the, the room, uh, you know, sort of worse off. I mean, for, for years, Manford was the one who was, who was in there as the negotiator. He was the, the he was Bud Selig's guy, the lead negotiator, uh, on these deals. Uh, do we know, is he, I can't imagine that as the commissioner, he's sitting across the table, uh, you know, directly working these out. This has to be somebody serving under him, uh, that that's working on these deals. Right. Yeah, he's not he's not the lead negotiator. Um, uh, they, um, you know, but I'm sure he's he's in direct communication with the guys that are are making deals. They've got some owners in there. You know, the owners of the Rockies owner uh, Steinbrenner was in there for the first time yesterday. Um, so uh, you know, they're 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 
you know, but they have a lead negotiator, the, the owners, just like uh, the players do. A lot of the conversation that's come out uh, just in the last 24 hours is about the profitability of owning a, a major league franchise and, and sort of that, that question of, well, you know, it's the, the owners, you know, are, 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 have a gold mine and are making all this money and, and are just unwilling to uh, carve off a bigger piece of the pie and share it with the players. And, and that's really something that goes back years because, you know, we don't know for sure. We don't, we have never seen the books, the, the books have never been opened up. So we don't know, you know, what it really does cost and what it really is profit wise to own a major league franchise. Uh, I don't think we ever will, but that's, that's really, uh, you know, every time these negotiations come up, that that question always comes up is 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 it worthwhile to own a major league baseball franchise and all you got to do is look at these teams are being bought for 185 million and sold for a billion you know somewhere in there somebody's making money yeah i i think uh today you know i saw some tweets today where liberty media um owns the braves and they're you know they're a public company and they have to release um you know they to release their uh, financial bottom line. And uh, uh, they did that uh, this past, for not, not including this season, but the last three seasons. And it, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a financial experts, but it looked like they were, they were doing okay. You're not a, you're not a forensic accountant. You're, we, you can't just dive in. Uh, come on. All these, all these years on the beat and covering all the, honestly, if you look at, uh, being a being a, a professional baseball writer for 38 years, you have to run the gamut of of knowing a whole lot about a bunch of different topics, you know, f- uh, finances and the way contracts work and all that, uh, you know, met, all the way to medical stuff and 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 legal stuff in terms of uh, you know what you can and can't announce that way. It, it really does uh, take uh, take a little bit of mastery of, of of a lot of disciplines to. To cover baseball pretty well, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a jack of all trades, but master of none. <laughs> right, exactly. But I, but I, the one thing I do know, Joe, I know what I don't know. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you know enough to 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 ask people who know more about something than you uh, to to explain it. I, I guess is the the way to go. Uh, uh, yeah, with this, I. Uh, I couldn't tell you from looking at, at those numbers or those figures because I don't, you know, I haven't sat down and, and just dove headfirst into them. But I got to believe that uh, a giant media conglomerate like like Liberty Media, uh, they're they're not in the business of owning something or owning a part of their business that that isn't that is failing that is that is costing them. So I mean, they would have sold the Braves long ago if it wasn't a profitable. Uh, venture so that that to me that's just the obvious yeah these teams don't get sold that much uh you know i i in a, in a hey hoingy recently someone asked me the same a lot a question along the same lines and i said when was the last uh, team that uh you know when was the last big league team that went bankrupt and uh you know and somebody wrote me back well the dodgers i guess declared bankruptcy under their old ownership uh, you know, before a uh, Magic Johnson bought the club, but uh, you know they're still there. They didn't go anywhere, <laughs> you know. And, right. And they right. just yeah, had they're... a two hundred what sixty five million dollar payroll this past season. So I think they're doing okay. 
Yeah, but I think in a lot of ways, some people falsely equate payroll to profitability. And there's there are a number of different ways that teams make money and and the number of different ways they spend money. And and payroll isn't necessarily the, the biggest way that a team spends money. I mean, there are a lot of other ways that uh, that can cut into a team's profits besides payroll. You look at the Dodgers and you say, oh, $265 million payroll. But, you know, if they're if they're making money because of their TV contracts, because of, uh, you know, everybody gets the same, I guess, share of merchandising and, and all that kind of stuff. But there are other ways, you know, they could be charging for for parking or, or whatever it, that, you know, 10 times more for parking than than other teams and, and be making money that way. Uh, and that's a, a, just a facetious example there. But the, it, it doesn't necessarily equate that, you know, just because you have a, a higher payroll than everybody else that you're not going to be as profitable. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but, you know, obviously they're in a huge market. They've got a great, uh, you know, local TV contract and uh, they are, they're going to be able to track, you know, the best players available and they've got the wherewithal to do that. Yeah. Until, uh, until things change in that regard. And, and we know that, you know, we haven't even heard the word uh, salary cap or salary floor or anything like that, you know, coming into any of these negotiations, because I think everybody knows that in, in, in baseball, uh, that's that's going to be a, that's a real hard sell. So, uh, all right. I, I with with no real concrete news in that that area, uh, you know, we head into the weekend uh, with our fingers crossed that come Monday, we'll be talking about, you know, being closer to a deal. But. Uh, I guess right now all we can do is sit and wait, and that's all we've been able to do for the last damn near 80 days. So I uh, want to get into our uh, most memorable uh, players for uh, today, the, our top 25 most memorable from, from Hoinsey's time covering uh, the, the Indians and the Guardians. Uh, I, I got to say, this is, this is probably uh, one of my favorite all-time uh, Cleveland players. Uh, we, we've talked about basically every guy around him on that 95 team, uh, 13-time gold glove winner, and all I got to do is tell you that, and, and everybody knows who we're talking about today, Hoinsey. Uh, who is it? Yeah, it's Omar Vizquel, Joe. Omar Vizquel, definitely. What a, uh, what a, what a fun guy it was to watch him play uh, shortstop, play defense. Well, now up front, let's, let's be transparent here. Uh, in, in, in most recent, in the most recent years, uh, during his candidacy for the hall of fame, there's been a lot of controversy and a lot of talk about, um, uh, accusations or allegations of domestic abuse, uh, from his wife, uh, and, uh, uh, controversy during his time as a minor league coach for the Chicago White Sox, where he was accused of, uh, sexual assault by a bat boy. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot to unpack there and I don't want it to seem like we're sort of avoiding that, but the whole purpose of this exercise has been over the last few months or over the last month here has been to look back and talk about the, the players and, and your memories of covering them when they were here in Cleveland. Uh, this stuff happened really within the last four or five years. So we're going to try and focus uh, our, our attention over the next here 15 minutes 
on Omar as a player in Cleveland, his time and, and what he brought to the team. Uh, and, and we can do another podcast and we probably will, uh, you know, quite frankly, on uh, Omar's Hall of Fame chances and the serious allegations. We've talked about them in the past. We've spent many minutes talking about, you know, what Omar faces and who he is and, and these credible allegations against him. So uh, let's, let's focus the rest of this podcast on, you know, the memories that we have of, of Omar and, you know, good and bad uh, during his time in Cleveland. Uh, go back to, uh, you know, a story you mentioned uh, about John Hart, uh, you know, just pulling off that trade to get Omar to Cleveland uh, back in what, 93, 94. Yeah. And, uh, and, and just how excited John Hart was to, because he knew what he had coming, coming in at shortstop. Yeah. Uh, uh, John Hart sent uh, Felix Fermin to uh, the Seattle Mariners for, uh, for, for Omar it turned out to be, you know, maybe the steal of the century. And, uh, you know, and, and Hart was so excited about, you know, the fact that he got Omar that I, he, he went to uh, uh, Venezuela where, where um, Omar was playing winter ball just to check him out, just to make sure, you know, he, he was who he thought he was. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was the finishing touch on, uh, from a defensive point of view on, on those great clubs, on those, you know, from 1994 through, what, 2000, 2001. He just, uh, you know, really, I don't think you're ever going to see a better you know, shortstop in uh, def- defensive shortstop in, in an Indian's uniform. Or right. Uniform. It, yeah. And, and, and really he, he sort of during the nineties there, he, he redefined that position for, for Cleveland. It was, it, it, it never really was, uh, you know, sort of the, the defensively, they never really had a, like a leader like that uh, during, during your time really as uh, covering the team, right? Yeah, he was the glue that put that team together. I mean, they had decent shortstops before that. You know, Felix Fermin was a good shortstop. Mm-hmm. You know, Tommy Verizer and Frank Duffy and all those, you know, that whole line of uh, shortstops. But, you know, Vizquel was something special. You know, gold, you, I think he won eight gold gloves in Cleveland, eight or, and uh, just, uh, you know, and he, you know, he played for 24 years. This guy made his big league debut in, uh, in at 21 and was still playing when he was 45 years old, Joe. So he was, you know, he ended his career in Toronto, um, you know, just uh, has played the most games ever at shortstop, had a uh, 95 game errorless streak at one point at shortstop, you know, the, the, the toughest, posi- you know, obviously you probably the toughest position, defensive position. And uh, just, uh, you know, just an all-around uh, very, very good player. And, you know, in, in Seattle, he was called Omar the Outmaker because, you know, people could knock the bat out of his hands. But he became a pretty – he became a very good hitter in Cleveland for the re- when he got here for the rest of his career, finished with over 280 – you know, two, almost 3,000 hits, 2,800 hits over – you know, over 2,800 hits. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, you know – and I thought he was on the, on the path to the hall of fame until, you know, these, you know, these allegations came up and uh, I just, you know, he really, his, his vote total took probably one of the biggest drops ever 
in in uh, you know Hall of, Hall of Fame history this this past season because of it. So I don't know if he's going to rebound from that. Yeah, it's tough to tough to see that happening. You're right. Uh, I want to go back to uh, the the development as a hitter over time because we saw that we knew coming in. Uh, I'll tell you what I knew of Omar Vizquel before he came to Cleveland was he was the guy who almost uh, uh, messed up Chris Basio's no hitter in Seattle because on the last play of the game, the, the last out of the game, he comes in and on that turf at the Kingdom on a bouncing ball to short uh, that he had to wait on, uh, he came in and he barehanded it and, and threw the guy out at first for the last out of the game. You're talking about, uh, he's got a no hitter in his hands and literally he had it in his hands, barehanded a ball <laughs> and, and the confidence to do that. Uh, that, that's, that was all I remember watching that highlight and thinking, wow, that, that was pretty amazing. And that, that's the guy who wound up playing shortstop in Cleveland for 11 seasons. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, he just looked like Joe, when you watched him play, he looked like he never was caught by surprise by any, any, ball that was hit to him any bounce that was hit to him and it looked like he'd seen that play and made that play 20 times before you know that he he'd done every you know he he just he 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 was relaxed he was confident he never looked overmatched on on defense and you know John Hart called him an acrobat and Mm -hmm. he really played the position like that he he was he was a marvel just Physically, he was, you know, the way he went out to in short left field to catch all, all those fly balls, the way he, you know, kind of, you know, he, some guys would go back in that left in short left field and they battle the sun. Omar fixed that by turning his back toward the sun and catching, catching balls over his shoulder. I remember right. Sandy Alomar saying, if he ever drops one of those balls, I'm going to go out there and punch him because <laughs> he never did. He was, he was, you know, he was just, uh, he was just like, uh, I don't know, just, you know, just an incredible defensive player. Yeah. It's, it's like he knew where the ball was going to be before the ball was there sometimes. And, and you, you say the word acrobat, you say, you know, when he was around the bag, he knew for with the exception of what, with the exception of Pudge Rodriguez, uh, he knew how to get out of the way and get to the bag and away from the bag without getting killed. Uh, he, he danced around and he flew around that bag and, and uh, uh, he, he really developed a, 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 an amazing chemistry with, with Carlos Baerga there and a, and a whole bunch of, you know, after Baerga uh, moved on, there were a whole line of, of second basemen who he worked with and played with and he never changed he, his his play never, you know, fell off because the, his partner at second base wasn't, you know, maybe as talented. Uh, the other thing that stands out is, is his arm. You know, he's, he's not a big guy. He wasn't a, you know, the, the, the prototypical shortstop of his time was the big physical, uh, you know, uh, like the Alex Rodriguez and, and Derek Jeter and Nomar Garcia Perra. Uh, those guys played shortstop and, and also hit. And we're, we're more, more known for their bat, but Omar's arm, you know, was, was equal or greater than, than any of theirs. Yeah. And the thing that set Omar's arm apart was his quick release, Joe. I mean, he, he didn't have the strongest arm, but he got rid of the ball so fast and his, you know, what, what, what does uh, Tito say that, that inner clock, that baseball mm-hmm. clock inside, he had a great clock. He, 
the time, you know, he had, he had the timing of the game down. He knew who was running. He knew just how hard he had to throw the ball. Uh, just, uh, just a joy to watch. And when he, when they paired him up for the last, for three years with Robbie Alomar at second base, you know, that, <laughs> that was worth the price of admission right there. Those two guys were, were, <laughs> that was a blast to watch, to watch. Them well, work. You know, Robbie was a, an MVP candidate for most of his time when he played here in Cleveland, and and Omar was was an All Star in '99, and and I, I think just uh, watching the two of them, watching Robbie go all the way out into short right field to to stop balls, and and then on the other side of that, watching you know Omar make turns and and flip the ball to him, it was it was a lot of fun to watch. We, you you sort of got the sense like you were watching. So, uh, you know, when when you watched, you know, LeBron James at the height of his, uh, you know, MVP streaks in, in, in streak in Cleveland, uh, you know, you're, you sat back and you, were, you said to yourself, boy, we've got the best player in the NBA here. Well, you, you've got the best shortstop second base combo in, in all of baseball, you know, playing for uh, Cleveland when when Omar and, and Robbie were there. Still got uh, – a pair of bobbleheads downstairs uh, that are, uh, you know, Omar Robbie bobbleheads that I, I keep <laughs> on the, uh, on the shelf just because uh, you know, it's, it's fun to look up there and, and remember the two of them turning plays. What was he like to, to interview? Was there ever a, an, an issue with him in the clubhouse or, or anything? Uh, I, I got to imagine every time I've ever talked to him and that was after his playing days uh, you know, he's, he's, he's not never been anything but a joy. Yeah, he was a great guy to talk to, you know, always there. You know, I'd, I've told this story before. I probably told it to you. His second home game, second home game after, in 1994 after John Hart, uh, you know, got him. They opened the season on the road. Second home game against Kansas City, he made three errors. And everyone's sitting there, you know, this is, uh, this is the gold glove shortstop that John Hart has been uh, trumpeting. And he, he makes three errors in one game. It might have been the only game he'd ever made three errors in. And uh, he, he was out waiting for the reporters at his locker, answered every question. And, uh, you know, that went, you know, I remember Jim Tomey had his locker right, right down the row from, from uh, Omar. And, you know, Tomey was, saw that, saw a guy like Vizquel kind of stand up and, and, you know, just answer the questions. And I think that influenced Tomey the way he handled the media as well. It, it was just, uh, you know, it, that was just Omar. But most of the time, he was just he was just fun to be around. He was, you know, he was an artist. He he was he sang. He, he played the drums. He was, you know, he's. He, I remember him and him and when when he, uh, when uh, Mesa and uh, Jose Mesa and, and Vizquel were buddies, he would they sat next to each other. They, their lockers were next to each other. He would draw pictures of Mesa, you know, on the mound, put them in his locker. Mm -hmm. But he, he was just—he was just a fun guy. He, you know, he was—he was an inquisitive guy. He was—it wasn't always just about baseball. You could talk to him about other stuff, and uh, you know, he was—he, you know, he, he painted. You know, he was—he did ice sculpture. He was—he did—he he was into everything. Well, and and uh, I'm sure he still continues to do some of those things uh, today. The the creative side of things. Uh, I know uh, he. He did write a book. Obviously, we talked about the Jose Mesa when we when we talked about your memories of Jose Mesa. You, you can't really not talk about the the controversy with Omar. Uh, he he did write an autobiography. 
uh, in that book, he, he criticized Mesa's performance in the, the 97 World Series, and that led to a years-long feud between the two of them that I'm, I'm sure still, you know, is, is going on today, uh, where, you know, Jose Mesa threw at Omar Vizquel every time he saw him. Yeah, Omar found out that the written word can be painful. Sometimes, <laughs> the sometimes the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, the pen is mightier than the sword, but the uh, the baseball hurts when it hits you in the ribs. Uh, yeah. It's uh, it, it it's it's fun to look back, sort of, on these stories and just the the big smile on his face. It, it, it you talked about for years, uh, Francisco Lindor being Mister Smile at shortstop and and the energy and enthusiasm that he had. Uh, I think part of the reason why Cleveland loved Lindor so much when he was here was because he reminded us of what it was like when Omar was there playing shortstop and had that, you know, that same smile and that same energy, that same youthful enthusiasm for, for the game and, uh, you know, to go along with the, the, the elite shortstop skills. Uh, I, I remember watching Omar warming up, just, just warming up on the sidelines before batting practice, uh, you know, throwing on the sidelines and he does this thing. And I, I'm sure many people have seen it where he catches a baseball, just playing toss back and forth. He'll catch a baseball without using his glove, without using the palm of his glove. He'll use like the backside of his glove. He'll deflect the ball into his bare hand. And it's, if you blink, you miss it, but it's, it's this sort of sleight of hand thing that he does and he does it without even like thinking or trying or whatever. And you, you, you go, I, you go out there and I'm, I'm playing catch with my, my son and I'm just gooping around trying to do it. And it's, you, you could really hurt yourself doing that. If <laughs> yeah, you play with you a, break with your a nose, <laughs> you break your nose, you break your hand, you break something. And this guy's <laughs> out there doing this with major leaguers. And it's like, not even a thing for him. Yeah. And the bare hand play, geez, oh man, you know, it just, you know, he said he only did it when it was necessary, but, you know, he, it, he, I never, I think maybe he screwed up once, but mm -hmm. I, I don't think he, I don't think he ever made, made an error when he used his bare hand. You know, he just, it kind of just came natural to him. He was just, you know, just such a fun guy to watch. And, you know, I remember, you know, the play that always stands out to me is against Charles Johnson, mm -hmm. I think in game six of the world right. series where he makes that great diving stop in the hole and throws him out. Now, obviously, Charles Johnson was a catcher, but to do that in game six of the World Series, you know, a game, a game you know, you've got to win. Uh, just, man, that was – and I remember talking to him after that, and he goes, I wish, you, I, wish I did it in game seven. I wish that was the last game because he, <laughs> he knew they had to play one more. Yeah, and, and that, that, that sort of leads me into my next question is, you know, what is Omar's legacy in Cleveland as a, as a player? He's, obviously, he's in the, he's in the franchise's, uh, you know, the team Hall of Fame. But, uh, you know, and, and the Cooperstown Hall of Fame, again, is another whole other podcast we could talk about. But his legacy in Cleveland and how will he be remembered and, and looked at? Because he went to two World Series and, and, and they never finished off. They never completed it. Yeah. Uh, and really we could talk about all the barehanded plays and all the amazing defense and, you know, the, the bunts and the base running and everything that he did so well, uh, they, they never won. Yeah. You know, and that, that's a great, that's a great point. You know, I, I remember Hal Levitz, you know, the great, you know, late sports editor of the plain dealer who had seen Lou Boudreau and until 
you know, Omar came along. Boudreaux was kind of the, the uh, prototypical shortstop, the guy, the MVP that led him to the 1948 World Series. And uh, Hal said that Viscell was probably a better defensive player. You know, obviously, Boudreaux is a better hitter. But, uh, you know, like you said, they, they got to two World Series. They, they couldn't win. They, they should have won at least one of those. Um, but they didn't. Uh, but I think, to me, you know, just from my perspective, I think he's the best overall shortstop that, that I've seen play, you know, and I started covering him in 1983. And, you know, I don't know, people, you know, people have their opinion. Lindor was very, very good. He didn't have the, uh, you know, he, he didn't stay here as long as, as Vizquel. He, you know, he was gone in five years, four or five years. But, you know, if he had stayed here, you know, for 11 years with the power he had, you know, kind of he was a combination of Alomar and Lindor. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alomar and uh, Alomar and Vizquel, you know, he combined the two talents here, offense and defense. Maybe he would have been the guy. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great point is that, you know, may, given a, a larger sample size on, on Francisco Lindor, you know, maybe he surpasses what Omar does. Maybe he wins, you know, a couple more gold gloves and is, is in that conversation as well because, you know, we, we, we definitely saw that kind of defense at times from Lindor. Uh, but, but again, it, it, it's like talking about that, that top 1%. That, it, that when we talk about Omar's defense, uh, it, it's like Omar – Ozzie Smith, and then like, you know, everybody else, the, the, those, those two guys in my mind are at the, at the very top of, of as high as you can get defensively right now. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's been what, 10, 10 years since he's played in the big leagues. And you think about that, it, we're, we still haven't seen anybody come along. That's, that's, you know, defensively, even in their same conversation. Yeah, he was in a class by himself. You know, Ozzie Smith, him, you know, those kind of guys, those are generational players. And, uh, you know, we were, we were fortunate to have him in Cleveland as long as we did. That's, that seems to me like a good place to, uh, to wrap things up here uh, on the podcast this week. Uh, this was a, a heck of a week. If you, if you think back about the guys that we talked about uh, in terms of the, the top 25 most memorable, we've got, uh, we've got two left to get to 25 and then, uh, maybe we'll put together a post where we, maybe even we 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 ask the uh, the subtext subscribers uh, to to rank the ones that we've done so far, and and we'll we'll put up a post that that you know it's their rankings of of who are who the top twenty five are and who's number one. Uh, I think that would be an appropriate way to wrap up and put a bow on this whole series, and and maybe when we come back on the other side of it, we'll uh, we'll be talking about some real baseball moves. All right, Joe, sounds good, man. 